If you have your Bibles, please open them up. We are ready for Matthew chapter 13 today. So I'm just going to jump right in today. Last week in Matthew chapter 12, we saw that, um, actually, let's look at verse number one. Let's start it that way. It says, on the same day, Jesus went out of the house. On what day? On the same day, the same day connects chapter 13 with chapter 12. So what happened in chapter 12? Do you remember last week we saw this hard-hearted group of Pharisees who came and Jesus finally has enough. And, And Jesus gives them these very scary, very ominous words. And he tells them, okay, you guys have gone too far. And then look at verse chapter 12 over verse 31. What does that say there? 1231 above there's a title what does it say somebody jesus said you guys have committed the unpardonable sin which basically means you're not going to inherit the kingdom of god you are going to hell and 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 this group of hard-hearted men have gone too far and jesus finally calls them on the carpet on it And he deals with us. And we talked about last week, what is the unpardonable sin? Can you and I commit the unpardonable sin while still alive? And we really spent the week, if you weren't here last week, just get the CD. We we spent the whole Sunday talking about that concept. So in this vein, Jesus is on the same day and he's going to begin chapter 13. Now, in chapter 13, it's the same crowd that gathers and Jesus is going to begin to speak to them in parables. Now, what's cool about this chapter 13 is that the disciples ask Jesus a couple cool questions. And I love when the disciples ask questions because we get answers. You ever been in class and the teacher's teaching and you just really hope someone will ask a question and, you know, because you want it to know the answer, but you're embarrassed to ask. And then some kid in class, you can always count on, raise his hand and say, teacher, I didn't understand that. And you're going, yes, yes, yes. You have to re-explain it. Well, the disciples said, can, why are you teaching them in parables, number one? And secondly, what does this parable mean or what do these parables mean? And so we get those explanations. Now, Jesus, again, in chapter 13, we have a shift. And even though it's on the same day, we, we went through a section, remember, and I'm not going to try to keep it speedy, but where Jesus was a great teacher. And then he began the 10 miracles section. And, and now we're beginning a new section, chapter 13, called the kingdom parables. Everybody say kingdom parables. Okay. There's seven parables about the kingdom of God that Jesus is going to teach. Now, a parable is, is one of Jesus's preferred styles or way to teach before this point before matthew 13 jesus is not teaching in parables he's very simple he's very plain to understand in the sermon on the mount it was direct it was easy to understand you didn't need a rabbi or a pastor or somebody to explain it to you you can read matthew 5 6 and 7 and understand very clearly what jesus is saying and what he meant and then he comes to this point in 13 and he begins to teach in parables now a parable is a heavenly or an earthly story that reveals a heavenly truth. It's an earthly story that that comes alongside of something that's true heavenly. Now, um, remember last week we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and my life in conjunction with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has three um, functions we see in the Bible. The first one is, there are three Greek words to describe them, para, en, and api. Okay, everybody say para. You guys didn't know you were doing like a kindergarten sing-along this morning, did you? But it's okay. Para, one more time. And a P. 
Those are the three relationships the Holy Spirit has in the life of the believer. Para is the, is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes alongside you. Before you were a believer, does anybody in here, can you call, recall a time before you were a believer where you knew God was speaking to you, where the Holy Spirit was drawing you and calling you unto truth? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's called para. The next thing is when you said yes and you received Jesus in your life to become your Lord and Savior. That's N. In the Greek, it's E-N. That's just a funny way the Greeks spell our English word I-N. In, really simply, the Holy Spirit comes in you. Jesus breathed on them, right, in John chapter 21, and they received the Holy Spirit. If they already had the Holy Spirit, why did Jesus say go to Pentecost? And in Acts chapter 2, God poured his Holy Spirit out upon them and they began to speak with other tongues and they began to do miracles and 3,000 people got saved at Pentecost. That was the P. The Holy Spirit comes alongside and convicts. The Holy Spirit comes in when invited. And the third, the third role of the Holy Spirit is to overflow us for power, to fill us as it happened to the church on Acts chapter 3, to fill them with power, Acts chapter 2. Now, that first word para alongside, that's the root word for parable. That's what a parable is. It comes alongside a real truth. It's an earthly story that para comes alongside an earthly truth. Now, the question is, a, a parable does two things. It reveals a matter. It reveals a matter in a very deep way. For example, do you remember um, Nathan and David? What happened with Nathan and David? Nathan, now, not Nathan, Nathan was the prophet at the time. David, he's standing on his roof in his palace and he's overlooking the Kidron Valley and he sees a woman there taking a bath. Now, the story comes to life when you go to Israel and you actually stand in the place where King David was. I stood there this last year. And and standing in in the very area where King David's palace was, there in the old city of David, you can see everything. You're up on the side of a mountain. You can see all this mountain, everything in the Kidron Valley, everything along the, what's today, the Muslim quarter. You can see absolutely everything. So you can see how David would have been on his roof and very easily could have seen onto Bathsheba's balcony. Do you think it's funny in the story that the woman who David saw taking a bath, her name was Bathsheba? Is that just coincidence or what? But David sees her and what happens? Ooh, I like that. And he tells his servant, hey, go, go invite her to the palace. And David sleeps with her husband. She's married. Her husband is away at war. And then everything's great. David and her have their fun. Except for David gets a call a couple of weeks later, a month later, and Bathsheba says, uh, David, by the way, I'm pregnant. So David says, no problem. I got this. So David calls for her husband to come home from war. And he, and he has Uriah come to his house. And David, you know, the story, right? David just small talks him. How's the war? How's the men? You know, have a good night. Go, go enjoy your wife. So, so Uriah leaves. There's only one problem. David thinking Uriah would go home. He would, he would sleep with his wife that night. And then when she announced she was pregnant, he would think it was his from that night. Uriah would raise that baby for the rest of his life as his own. Everybody would be happy. Nobody would know about David's sin. Well, Uriah goes home that night. And instead of going into the house, he lays down on the floor and goes to sleep. And, and David looks out and he says, uh-oh. So the next night he brings Uriah back and he gets him really drunk and he keeps, he keeps filling his glass and filling his glass and encouraging him to drink until Uriah is so stumbling drunk that David says, surely now drunk, he'll go home and enjoy his wife. 
So Uriah goes home, stumbling drunk. He lays on the porch. And even drunk, Uriah had more integrity than David. And so, so now David devised a plan. He wrote a letter, basically said, have Uriah murdered. And he, he gave it to the hand of Uriah. He sealed it with the king's seal. And Uriah went to the battle and was murdered. And then David took Bathsheba to be his wife. Well, Nathan comes to his house, the prophet, and he gives him a parable. And he says, well, he doesn't know it's a parable at the time. And he says, David, he says, there was a, a wealthy, wealthy man in your kingdom. And he had hundreds and hundreds of sheep. And his neighbor had one little ewe lamb. And his neighbor loved that ewe lamb with all of his heart. He slept with it in his bed at night. It was a family pet. Well, the rich man had some guests that were coming to dinner. And the rich man, rather than go and kill one of his own hundred sheep, he, he went and he stole his neighbor's one little ewe lamb and he killed it and served it for dinner to his guests. And David was so angry. And he said, surely that man will die. Now, what's interesting is that the law of Moses didn't call for the death penalty if you stole your neighbor's sheep. You had to replace it twofold and pay some penance and do some stuff. But you, weren't, you didn't die for that crime. But David, because he saw his own sin on somebody else, he was so angry that he, he ordered for the death of that guy. And then we get one of the most famous lines in the Bible from, from Nathan. We, we think we invented this little saying today, but it's thousands of years old, right? David looked at, Nathan looked at David and what did he say to him? He said, you the man now, dog. He said, you are the man. You are the, you're the one. And then David realized that he was the one in the story. Again, a parable that teaches a, a bigger truth. All that to tell you what a parable does. A parable reveals something in a deeper way. The second thing a parable does is it conceals a truth. Because the, the truth was concealed in Nathan's story to David until Nathan revealed to him what he wanted him to know. But Dave, David heard the whole story that was about himself, not knowing it was about himself. And so a parable also conceals the truth. And that's what Jesus is going to do here. Now, the, the question is, why, why would Jesus, the lover of my soul, the creator of the heavens and the earth, why, why would he want to teach in such a way that people wouldn't understand or that people couldn't understand? Well... Jesus, the simple answer is this, that Jesus honors the sovereignty of man. Do you know why people end up in hell? The Bible says it's a choice that they make. It's a choice that someday God honors. We talked about it last week in length, the unpardonable sin. It's a hardening of heart. It's a choice to not want God in your life, not want God in your life, not want God in your life, not want God in your life. And if you do that enough and for long enough, at one point, God honors your request, right? Wouldn't he not be a gentleman if he, if he forced himself? You don't want nothing to do with him for all of your life here. Why would you want to spend all of eternity with him? And at some point, God honors your request for him not to be a part of your life. And because of the sovereignty of God, he, he at this point now, for several reasons, he, he's giving those that don't want to hear the opportunity not to hear. And you don't have to receive. Let me ask you something. We haven't even got, oh, we did, we started in verse one. We're like through halfway through verse one. I'm doing good. Um, check it out. Do you, do you think, let me ask you a question. If Jesus was here in the flesh, do you think Jesus could, then let's say we had the hardest heart scientists and atheists come through the door. Okay, whoever they were. 
Who's the gentleman who just, just passed away in the wheelchair, a really smart guy? Stephen Hawking. If, if Stephen Hawking came in and he sat here and Jesus was the teacher, do, do you think that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, do, do you think that he could come up with an intellectual argument that was so powerful, that, that was so um, thought out and so um, intellectually sound that, that even Stephen Hawking couldn't argue with it? Could God come up with an argument that way? You think God can do that? Like God's a little smarter than Stephen Hawking's? If some of you in here are not sure, let me tell you, God is, God's a little smarter than Stephen Hawking's. Or any, anybody. God, God absolutely, Jesus absolutely could have formed his message, his words in such a way, and still can, that will absolutely force people who don't want to believe to have to believe because the argument is so sound. Because the logic is so clear. But Jesus made a choice that he wasn't going to do that. And Jesus made a choice for you. If you don't want to believe, you don't have to believe. And he's honored your choice. And, and a parable in a way in, this, in the context of chapter 12 that was dealing with a big group of people that had hard hearts. Jesus now flips the script in chapter 13 and begins to speak in parables in such a way that he doesn't, he doesn't force anybody who doesn't want to believe to believe. You know, you know, one of the concepts that you don't like that I don't like, and I get it, is that God doesn't prove himself to you first and then you believe. Why won't God do that for you? Wouldn't it make sense for God just to do that? Well, let me tell you, when you're God, you can do it how you want. But in the meantime, God says it's impossible to please him without faith. You know, how many times, I had a guy tell me, and I've had this happen multiple times. I had a guy tell me one time, multiple times, oh, pastor, if your God is real and all this is your true, then that God will strike me with lightning right now. And he looks at me like, where's the lightning? No lightning. I guess your God doesn't exist. But God's not going to come to that level, right? I don't want to be that guy on judgment day. But that, that, that mocking and that disbelief, God, God's not going to stoop to that level. God, God is, we have to first believe and then God is going to reveal things to us intellectually. That's just the way it works. Like it or leave it is just how it is. Faith first and then God begins to reveal. He begins to explain truth and understand I better get into this so we're never going to finish. Um, but I'm not done yet. So it, it is important. I want to I want to share along this same concept as, as for kind of still by the way of introductory to 13. Listen. Um, so so the chapter is about cultivating good ground in your heart. OK, so uh, we want to be able to receive what God wants to do in our hearts. So this chapter is a chapter, the parable of the soils. So we call it the parable of the sower, which is the farmer or the guy with the bag of seed who goes out in the field and he's scattering seeds like this as he throws them and the different seeds land in different places. And Jesus uses this story to explain a, a thing. But the reality is it's the soil that catches the seed that is the heart. It's the soil that catches the seed that, that, that is in your life, is it in my life, is in the heart. The seed is the word of God. So really the, the, the story is about the, the soil, parable of the soil more accurately. So again, in this chapter, God wants to cultivate in each one of you a heart that can receive the word of God so that it does what God intended it to do, which is what? Produce fruit. Produce fruit. John chapter 15. You have to look that up. It goes with this. Now, in that, and in the same idea of the context of where we are, last little introductory statement, then we'll get into it, I promise, okay? You guys still with me? 
Okay, listen, I don't know how to say this better than just to say, God is not, I don't want to say God is not interested, but I will, okay, bear with me. God's not interested in casual seekers. Not to say God doesn't have a heart or patience or grace for casual seekers or that God doesn't pull the plow, as we're going to see in this chapter, the plow across those hard hearts. Because even in the hard heart, God is still working in that heart to try to soften it. God is still calling and drawing and pouring out his mercy and his grace and his love on all people. But, but God is interested. What Jesus is really interested in is not a casual seeker, but is an intimate seeker. Somebody who wants to be intimate with God. Somebody who desires to grow and be close to God. Now, I want to tell you, one of the questions I get as a pastor, it just happened to me the other day. We were right back in the youth room. Family came in. We met. And an honest question, they weren't trying to, you know, and I wasn't judging them, but I get it from time to time. They say, Pastor, I read the Bible and I didn't understand it. Honest question. Honest belief. So I took him to a verse and it says, be kind one to another. And I said, you need me to explain that to you. Those are the jokes, folks. So you laugh, the day goes a little better. That's it. Like, be kind one to another. Is that hard to understand? What do you mean you don't understand it? Jesus said, John said multiple times, love one another. Can you understand that? So, yeah, but I get it. I wasn't trying to belittle him. So, so I understand that there are places in the Bible that are hard to understand. There are also places in the Bible that are very clear. I understand if we opened the book of Revelation and we just read it, there would be some things that we would need to understand and other places we'd have to look to, to be able to get it. But here's the concept that Jesus talks about in the parables and that Jesus is looking for. That, that, that it's spiritually discerned. You've got to turn with me one place, if you will, to unpack this. But go with me to 1 Corinthians. So take a right. When you get past the Gospels, you'll come to Acts, then Romans, and then, and then 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. I love to hear the pages of Bibles turning. All right? That's why you got to bring your Bibles. When you flip on your iPads, I can't hear that. So, hey, put that, put that little swish sound on there and turn it up when it's time to flip so we can, we can enjoy it. Verse 14 says, listen, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Somebody say fool. They're foolish to the natural man. What does the word natural man mean? That means the person who is not born again, okay? So somebody who is not yet born again is natural. Jesus described it in John chapter 3 as somebody who is dead, right? Because in John chapter 3, he said you must be born again. So when you're born, you're born into the spirit. Before you're born again, spiritually you are dead, okay? So the, the problem is not that people don't understand. The problem is that dead men don't read well. Dead, dead people don't understand well. The issue is not, you know, oh, some pirate in here was going to tell me dead men tell no tales, right? Is that how it goes? But the idea is that if your spirit is dead, then, then your natural man is not going to receive the things of God because they're foolishness to you. So, so the, the more foolishness is the heart of men when the heart of men say this, well, when God helps me understand or believe those things or know those things, then I'll believe. And they're going to be stuck there forever. Because you have to believe first, and then God begins to reveal. Now look, look, look at the rest of the verse 14. What does it say? Nor, 
Are you with me? 1 Corinthians 2.14, really important. Nor can he know them because they are, everybody, they are what? The things of God are what? Okay, spiritually discerned. That means that your spirit, what does the word discern mean? Understood, understand, receive, discern, feel. So, so your spirit and the spirit of God that lives inside of you is what gives you understanding. So when, when certain people don't understand parables, they don't understand the word of God, it's because they, these things are spiritually discerned. Follow? Okay, last little thing, I promise, and we're totally done. Okay, now as you spiritually discern, I want to tell you this because the, the other comment we get sometimes, and, and maybe some of, you, some of you in here feel this way, and, and if you do, let me talk to you for a minute. You, you've prayed and, and God didn't answer. You, you read the Bible and you didn't get it. You asked God for something and nothing happened. You've, you've sought the Lord. You want to believe, but you, you're, you, you can't or you don't. And it's not, it's just that you, you've honestly stepped out and tried and it just wasn't there. Well, listen, the Bible says that as a seeker of God, that there's a certain criteria that you have to seek. And I will suggest, now I, I can be wrong and we can still be friends, but look, I'll suggest that you haven't met that criteria for those of you that fit that category that um, have prayed and nothing happened or you'd have, you sought the Lord and you didn't get an answer. You haven't met the criteria that God laid out for you to be a seeker of God. Multiple, dozens of times in the New Testament, God says that he's not interested in a casual seeker. He's interested in somebody who will seek him with all of their heart, with their whole life. Now, there's lots of them, you guys, but my favorite, Jeremiah 29, 11. Who knows that verse? Somebody does, right? See, that verse always gets a response, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, it's on magnets, right? It's, it's on bumper stickers. It's on the fridge at the house, right? Somewhere you guys have a plaque in the house, in the 180 house, right? And it has Jeremiah 29, 11 on it. But you know what's sad about that? That's not even the best verse in Jeremiah chapter 29, the best verse, my favorite verse in Jeremiah 29 is not verse 11, but verse 13. And look what 13 says. 13 says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. All of your heart. Jesus said, if you knock, the door will be opened. If you seek, you will find. Not you might find, not you shall find. So listen, if, 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 if somebody comes to me in honesty and not trying, to, not trying to judge them or diss them, but if they say to me, I sought Jesus and I didn't find him. And Jesus says to me through his word that if you seek me, you will absolutely find me. One of them is a liar. Who's lying, Jesus or this person? Right, it's pretty simple math. It's not, it's not, it's the person hasn't really sincerely Come with the heart of sincerity to seek God, even in anger. You know, so many people have got saved with this prayer. Like, you know, if there's a if there's a God in heaven, he'll reveal himself to me and maybe lashing out disrespectfully towards God. But even though on the outside, they're disrespectful because he's a God of heaven. He's big. He can handle it. He sees the heart and the heart of that person is really crying out to God and wants God. And even though they've been disrespectful on the outside and, and they can repent and God can forgive that, they've really sought him with their whole heart. They've really desired to know God. And if you come to God with all your heart, the word of God promises you'll find him. And if you want to be a real seeker of God, you, there's no half-stepping. 
There's no halfway. God's not looking and not interested in, in nominalization of your life or being a nominal believer. You, do, do you realize, and, and the parable that Jesus is going to give here in a minute, we'll, we'll get to it. Um, let, let me ask this as, as we set up this last thing. Do you guys know anybody that at one point was a Christian or walking with God that doesn't walk with God today? Okay. Do we know people? Does that happen in, 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 in Christian circles? Does that happen in church where people who were on fire for God, maybe even one day, maybe being used by God, who today don't even walk with the Lord? Absolutely. It happens. People fall away. Okay. Do we want to be those people? No. Okay, well, let's, let's look today how to cultivate the heart so we don't become. We've already established that we don't want to be nominal. We don't want to be um, casual seekers. We, want to, we know we have to seek God with all of our heart. And now we're going to see the parable of the heart. So we're going to read it in the first part. Um, Jesus gives the explanation in verse 18. So when we get to 18 is when we'll, when, we'll, when we'll unpack it. So it says, on the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Jesus was sitting down. You know, in those days, the teacher would sit and the students would stand. We should try that. It would solve our seating problem. We could probably, we could fit a lot more people in here standing. We'd only need one chair. We'd put it up here. I could sit. You guys could stand. I'd be like Jesus. You guys would be like in Jesus's days. Well, the teacher sat and the people stood. And then it says in verse 2, and great multitudes were gathered. And again, in this multitude were some that wanted to receive, some with hard hearts. We know among the Pharisees, many of them did come to Jesus. Not all of them had hard hearts. You know who Jesus was talking to in John chapter 3? Who was, who was Jesus talking to in John chapter 3? You all know John three sixteen. You should know this. Jesus was talking to a man named Nicodemus when he gave us our most famous verse, John three sixteen. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus. Saul of Tarsus was a famous Pharisee who came to Jesus. Simon, who carried Jesus's cross down the Via Dolorosa, was a famous, was a Jew who, who became a Christian or became a follower of Christ. So many of them did. So in this multitude of people that gathered, we have those same schmucks. I don't know what that means in another language. Maybe it's bad, but... Um, hoping it's not that bad in English. So we have these other bad guys from chapter 12 who were there. We have some good guys. We, we got this whole group and Jesus is teaching the whole multitude. And he spoke to them many things in parables saying, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. And some fell on the stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on the ground and yielded a crop, some hundred, some sixty, and some thirtyfold. He who has an ear, let him hear. So I, I, I'm from L.A., right? Like, I grew up in, um, on Manhattan Beach Boulevard. There's two lanes um, on my side of the street that went... Um, east, two lanes on the other side of the street that went west, three miles, and you're at the Manhattan Beach Pier. I was on Manhattan Beach Boulevard. Two miles, and then a half a block from my house is Hawthorne Boulevard. Hawthorne Boulevard is one of the longest running streets through Southern California. It's five lanes on each side, and there's a center divider that you park, they park semi-trucks in, and that's a half a block up. So I lived on the corner of Hawthorne Boulevard and Manhattan Beach Boulevard growing up. So when I became a Christian in L.A. at 20 years old, and then I started reading my Bible, 
Let me tell you, these farm stories make no sense to me. Like, I, I didn't get it. Like, a sower, I'm thinking, like, someone is sewing a garment. That's how bad it was. For the longest time, I believed that, that I, I'm probably still going to get this messed up, but that, the, the, that that song said, Amber Waves of Gray. Gray. Amber Waves of Gray. That's the way I used to sing it, Amber Waves of Gray. I had no idea it was Amber Waves of Grain. But, um, but anyways, so... Maybe somebody misses the concept of the sower and the seed like I did because I just didn't have any concept of this stuff. So I want to paint just a little quick mental picture. So imagine a field and mostly just dirt, right? And, there, and in the dirt, there's lots of, of the ground that's been um, worked and, and tilled and, and it's, been, it's, it's ready for, for the seed to go in it. And, and then along that, you know, the animals and where the humans and where the tractors go, they, they've wore down certain parts of the field and they're really hard. If we were on a golf course, those would be the cart paths that are concrete. So those are really, 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 really hard. Other places, they didn't get all the rocks out of the soil. And so the soil is okay, but there's lots of rocks in it. Okay. And then the last one is, is the place where when the, when the seeds begin to grow, weeds also grow in the same area. So you have this field and you have this sower and maybe who knows what it looked like. Maybe he had a bag on his waist or wore around his waist and in it would be the seeds that he was planting. And he would walk along the fields and he would scatter seeds and throw them and, and they would go. Well, as he threw seeds, the seeds would land in different places in the field. And if they land on the cart path or they land on the part of the, of the soil that's very hard, what's going to happen to that seed? It's just going to sit on the what? It's going to sit on the surface and then the birds of the air are going to eat those seeds, right? And then some are going to go and they're going to get in the rocky area and the seeds going to go in. And as it begins to grow up, the part that goes down is going to hit more rocks and it's not going to have any roots. And you guys know the wind blows in the top of the tree, no matter what. And and, and if the top of the, if the bottom of the tree is not as big as the top of the tree, when the wind blows, the persecutions and the trials of life, the tree is going to topple. So that second seed goes in, but it, it's rocky and it can't, it doesn't have any roots. And so it withers and it, it doesn't have any system and it dies easily. The other one goes in the good soil, but along, along next to it grows weeds. Let me tell you something about weeds, right? I'm not a farmer. I grew up in a concrete jungle, but I know weeds. I've learned a few things about weeds, right? Like you don't have to plant them. You can't kill them. You know, I read a Bible story and they say that it's a true story. In, in Israel, after Titus Vespasian came through, it says that he sacked the city and then he plowed the whole city with salt. Why did Titus Vespasian plow the city with salt? Because salt kills everything and it can't grow. So I thought, well, okay, salt kills the soil. So I went out to that patch in my backyard and I got my salt and I covered it in salt and I dug it all in and salt kills the soil. Don't kill the weeds. I saw the biggest weed patch I have in the whole backyard right there where I dumped all that salt. Didn't, didn't do nothing. How, how come it is like, you know, the, your strawberry patches don't grow that way, right? Like they just grow on their own. You can't kill them. Just beautiful strawberries all the time. Like, but those, those weeds, they, they fight for the same nutrients, the same water, the same things in the soil. And some of those seeds are going to fall and, and they're going to grow. But the, the, the weeds and the thorns are going to choke out their fruitfulness. Okay, so those are the four soils. We'll talk about it a little more in verse 18. And then in verse 10, it says, And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak in parable, parables? 
So I've already answered that question, I hope. We did that all in the intro, verse 10. Okay, Jesus spoke in parables because he wanted to honor men's sovereignty. He's not going to force you beyond your will, beyond your capacity to receive him or walk with him. He's going to honor that in your life. You have a choice. And if you desire to seek God with all your heart, you'll find him. If you desire to seek God with all your life, you'll, you'll get him. You know, at the end of that parable, he says some receive 30, some receive 60, and some receive 100 fold. Why is that? Which one are you? Are you 30 fold, 60 fold, or 100 fold? Let me ask it this way, because I, I know the answer. We'll all have the same answer. Which one do you want to be? Right? That's, that's a no-brainer, right? We all want to be like, who doesn't want to be 100 fold? But, but how is it that some are 30, some are 60, and some are 100? Does, does God just arbitrarily decide? Did he, did, did he give you a number before you were born, 30, 60, or 100? We shall see. We'll check it out in the, in the explanation. And then in um, verse number 11, he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So for some to, be, to reveal it and others to, to conceal it. For whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parable because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You know, part of Jesus speaking in parables and not forcing it on people is an act of mercy. You know something about what the Bible says? The Bible says that you are held accountable for what you know. Did you guys know that? What you do now, you're like, why'd you tell me that? Then I wouldn't be held accountable for knowing that. What do some people do in response to that? You're responsible for the information that you have. You're responsible for what you know. Don't tell me anymore. I don't, I don't want to know anything else. You're putting me in a bad position. It doesn't work that way and it doesn't, doesn't help. But that's, that's unfortunately, that is our response when it should be exactly the opposite. But we, we feel that way sometimes. But maybe in mercy, because the Bible says that, that some will be beaten with many stripes and some will be beaten with few stripes. So maybe in an act of mercy, he, he conceals these matters. And then in verse um, 14, he's just quoting the prophet Isaiah. And he says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive. But the hearts of people have grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes, ha they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes for you, they see and your ears for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired, listen, to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Listen, what did many prophets and righteous men desire to see? Verse 17. What did, what, what's the answer? Tell them, babe. The Messiah, right? Do you know, like today, our, our, our young girls, they, they dress up and they, they play house and they pretend to be princesses and, you know, <laughs> whatever it is that they emulate, you know, hopefully not Miley Cyrus, right? Um, maybe when she was Hannah Montana, it was cool. And then all of a sudden it just got, it just got twerky, like quick, you know, like <laughs> no, no, no more Hannah Montana. We don't want to be, we don't want to do that, you know, but, um, but in the day, even in Mary's day and before that, the, the little girls would play and would pretend when they played house, they would pretend that they would be the mother of Messiah. 
that they were the one that would bring Messiah. And, and, and just like today, there's a buzz all over the world that something is happening. Now, I don't care what you believe, and I'm not saying necessarily that it's always Christian, like the whole Y2K thing wasn't Christian. It was just the world saying the world's going to end when, you know, the clock turns 2000. What about when the Aztec or my Incan calendar was going to run out, right? And everybody was saying that was the end of the world. That wasn't Christian folks predicting that. But, but all around the world, now the Christian folks, us, we're predicting that Jesus is coming. We're living in the last days, absolutely. But that same thought is pre- prevalent all over the world in all kinds of different cultures for lots of different reasons. Well, well in Jesus' day, it was no different. They understood biblically. They understood from the Old Testament very clearly that God was going to send the Messiah. And they anticipated that. They, they expected that. They wanted, and Jesus said they wanted to see it. But many people, many generations from Adam to Jesus died before they got to see it. And he said, you guys have got to see it. Now, now let me tell you something about where you are. This is a, this is a hard pill to swallow for you and me. If I could ask you guys, um, if you could live in any time in human history, where, what time in history would you live? At this time, right? Most of us would say, I'd live at the time of Jesus, or I would, I would want to be there when Jesus taught this in Matthew 13. I would love to be standing in that crowd as Jesus is on the boat. If you could meet any person in human history, you know, I would, I would meet Jesus, we say. But you, you know what's interesting is that Jesus himself, and this is the hard pill to swallow, said that it's better for you today and that you have better access to God and Jesus today than those that lived in Jesus' day did. That's like that pill in, in uh, Princess Bride. He had to chocolate coat it for Wesley to take it. It looked like an acorn. I don't know how he was going to swallow it anyways. Chocolate or not, that thing wasn't going down. But um, the, because we think, man, life would be so much easier. I could, I could believe. I could, I could understand if I could only be there when Jesus was here. But Jesus said, if I go, it's better for you. Now, listen, if Jesus says it's better for you, let me tell you something. It's better for you. He says, it's better for you that I go because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. This is the thing I remind people all the time. Do you realize that the, the phenomenon, the dispensation of us being daily filled with the Holy Spirit, that didn't happen through all human history until after Jesus died on the cross? Do you know Moses was not filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you know Abraham was not filled with the Holy Spirit? They were led by the Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. But, but, but the function of Acts chapter 2, that was new in Acts chapter 2. When God poured his spirit out, he said, Joel says, At one day I'm going to pour my spirit out upon all flesh. And your young men will see dreams and your old men will prophesy. Or the other way around. Do the old men see dreams and the young men prophesy? <laughs> yeah, old men dream dreams and the young men prophesy. But, but, that, but that thing that you have the spirit of God who lives inside of you, and you have that access. You, you don't, we don't have that excuse. Oh, I could believe if Jesus was here. No, what you have is better. You have the word of God. You have the completed word of God. You have the Holy Spirit of God that lives in your life. Okay, and now we get the last thing. I got 13 minutes and we can do it. It says in verse 18. Okay, we talked about this already. Do people fall away? We established it, right? You know, I was talking to Greg. That, by the way, we got to pray for Greg. Greg is the, um, what do we call Greg? Director? He's the director of 180 Ministries. Greg and I have become very good friends and love Greg to death. And um, he was riding a horse last night. This is not a parable. 
He fell off of his, he bucked off the horse, had to go by ambulance to Tooele Hospital, 12 broken ribs. They couldn't handle him at Tooele Hospital. They had to airlift him to desert, or not desert, we're not in Yucca Valley anymore, to the U, where he's, where he now is at the U. Currently, right now, he's at the U this morning, a couple bones broken in his back, 12 ribs. So he, they say he's doing better, and they're going to have to do surgery if he can't start breathing on his own, but... And imagine what that feels like. Let's pray for Greg right now. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for Greg. And Lord, we pray, God, that you'd heal him. You'd be with him in the hospital today. We're bummed he was going to be here today. And uh, Lord, uh, this accident happened and we pray for your healing. God, we know it's an attack of the enemy, but Lord, good will come from it. And so bless Greg and his family and uh, be with the girls and, and the rest of the staff in Greg's absence in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was talking to Greg, and one of the things that, that he's praying about that he was doing was that so many of these young girls that come from all over the country to, to hear, they, they're getting saved, they're asking Jesus in their heart. But the truth is that, that not all of them, are when they get home, stay in that same place with God. Many of them are, 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 are getting pregnant was one of the stats that's come out. Many of them are just not walking with the Lord. And so, um, you know, and that's just an example. And I'm definitely not picking, but I'm saying, hey, you guys are here. God's doing an amazing work in your life. The truth is, the reality is that it's happened before. Let's not be that person. Let's not, let's, 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 let's make better decisions. Let's continue that fire with God. Let's not be nominal believers and let that happen. And it happens in all walks of life, in all circles. And whatever part of the room that we look at, that, that, that people walk with the Lord in a season and they, and they can fade away. They can fall away. And we, never, we always want to be in that place where we're close to God. Now let's look at some of the reasons why that happens is what Jesus is talking about here. And it says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. So now he's going to explain it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives. So three things in verse 19 explain. <clears throat> the seed is what? Hears. When anyone hears the word, the seed is the word of God. You know, somebody planted the word of God in your life. Somebody invited you to church. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody encouraged you. Somebody told you about the gospel. And, and since somebody told you, guess what? Now it's your turn to go tell somebody else. Somebody did it for you. You're sitting here because of that reason. And, and so the, 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 Jesus said that the word of God is the seed in the parable. And then the second one, the wicked one, which represented by a bird, right, in verse 4. And he who sowed some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. So the bird is the devil. You know, in, in the Bible, birds are oftentimes um, a symbol of evil. Black birds especially. Um, I don't know why the world has a fascination with black birds. Like counting crows, casting crows, 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 Sharon crow, Cheryl crow. Everybody has some kind of fascination with crows. But biblically, a crow can represent a demon or a demonic force. Now, not always, right? The Holy Spirit is represented as a dove. The Holy Spirit is represented as a bird. Birds um, fed Elijah in the wilderness. God used actually ravens for those. I, I, I got a blackbird story I probably shouldn't be telling in church, especially with time running out. But um, 
You know, I hate black birds for this reason, because I've, I've just decided for myself, not for you guys, right? Just for myself, the black birds are evil and they're tempters of hell. And so I hate crows. But, you know, the thing about a crow is they're, they're really hard to, um, to kill and they're very smart. They say that a crow and ravens have the IQ of like a dolphin. They're like that high up on the, on the scale of brains. But my dad was, um, my dad was a, was a, was a hunter and he died when I was, when I was really young, but my dad was from Louisiana and he was a hunter and fisher and he had the philosophy that if you killed it, you ate it. And so my brother, Sonny, who some of you have met, they were hunting and, and there was a crow in the tree above him. And so Sonny took his shotgun and he shot that black crow or raven, whichever one it was and killed it. And my dad made him skin it and eat it. And he said, you killed it. You're going to eat it. So he made him skin it and cut it up and get it ready and barbecue it and I think the story goes that dad had mercy on him like right before he had to actually eat the whole thing. But he was trying to prove a point that if you kill it, you got to eat it. But that wasn't my crow story, but that was another one that came to mind. But we were, we were coyote hunting and we hunted all day long and saw nothing. I mean, we called and we set up and we hiked and absolutely nothing all day long, me and Trent. And, uh, so we're, we're leaving. It's like the sun is getting ready to set. We've worked all day and we haven't fired our guns all day. Right. And then, so Trent is driving and, and we're in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road and a crow lands on the fence in front of us out there. So every time you pull your truck up to a crow, what happens when the truck stops? The crow stays there and gets shot. No, the crow gets up and flies away. So this crow gets up and flies away and he just flies directly away from us um, about two, 250 yards. He's out there a bit. So Trent takes a 270, which is a big rifle, like a deer rifle. He hangs it out the window and he's going to shoot a crow like at 250 yards away because by this time, I'm sure he just wanted to kill something. We hunted all day and did nothing. So he fires at this crow and the crow laughs at him and flies away. He didn't get anywhere near it. No, I'm not kidding. 25 yards in front of the truck, down in the ditch, is a coyote that we didn't see. And the coyote heard the gunshot, thought we were shooting at him. He jumped up and took off running. I'm yelling at Trent, coyote, coyote. We worked all day and didn't see one. I said, I got a new strategy now when we coyote hunt. You just stop every 50 yards and you fire out the window until they run. And because that, that works better than the way that we do. They're trying to kill a black bird. But all right, so the black bird is the devil in the story, in this story. And when the wicked one comes, he, he snatches away what was sown in his heart. So Jesus said that the, the, the um, explanation of the parable is that hard soil, the cart path, the part that's worn down by the tractor tires and the seeds just sit on it. That heart represents um, the, the hard heart. And again, the, the heart is the soil, right? In the, in the parable, the soil is the heart. So the hard heart, I had a guy who called into the radio station after a radio program, and he was bitter and angry and said, you know, how long are you going to continue to deceive people? We know that religion is a farce and that it's never helped anybody and it's responsible for every war that's ever gone on. Why don't you people stop telling everybody a lie that you know is not true? You and I both know is not true. Why don't you go get an honest living and sell automobile tires or fix automobiles or something honest and stop ripping people off? Because as you, as well as you know, and I know, religion is a lie. Thank you. Have a good day. So bitter. Such a hard heart against God. And that's, you know, that's, that's something that can happen in people's lives. We, we know people like that. You know anybody like that? You have family members like that? You have anyone in your life that just has a hard heart. 
And that's one of the hearts. And definitely and obviously we don't want to have that heart, but that is the reality of what happens in the word of God. And then the second one in verse 20, Jesus said, but he who received the seed in the stony place, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So this guy receives it. You go and you tell someone about Jesus and you're like, the very first time you tell them, they get super excited. They say, yes, they ask Jesus in their heart. They're full of joy. They think it's wonderful. Maybe they went to a harvest crusade and, you know, Anaheim Stadium and 50,000 people praising Jesus and half the crowd stands up and says, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? You guys ever been in a crowd like that? And the other side gets up. It's kind of moving, right? You know, and so you're there. And you're like, yeah, this is cool. And I'm having such a good time. And yeah, I want to ask Jesus in my heart. And then you go to work on Monday and you tell some of your coworkers, oh, I went to Greg Laurie's Harvest Crusade on Friday night and asked Jesus in my heart. And they say, oh, you're one of them now. And then the persecution happens and you sprang up quick. But you didn't have any time to develop roots. You didn't anything. Nothing went down and developed and grew, grew wide. And again, as big as the tree is going to be in the top, it has to be in the ground. You know why God allows dry times in your life? So that your roots can go down deeper and find water. You know why God allows trials and struggles in your life? Because it's necessary for you to have as big of a root system under as you do on top. And, and so those things are necessary because God loves you. But, but those things for, for shallow Christians, if you don't have any depth in your Christian walk and you stay on the surface, what's, what's one way you can stay on the surface in your Christian walk? is never get into the word of God, is never develop a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You just come Sunday and and this is your only experience and you dust your Bible off and, you you know, next Sunday morning, a week from today, you'll be going, where's my Bible? Where's my Bible? Because you haven't seen it for a week. And, and, And again, if you don't create some maturity and some depth, you're, going to, you, you're possibly going to be this second type of seed that Jesus talked about. And then Jesus said in verse 21, because he has no depth or no root in himself, endures only for a while. But when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Did you realize Jesus said when, not if, tribulation and persecution arises? Do you realize that as a believer in Jesus, listen, being a follower of Jesus is hard. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently. Let me tell you something about being not a believer in Jesus Christ. It's much harder. Okay, I'm not saying that. Hey, I never want to go through this world without the power of God helping me through this life. But because I have the power of God, because I have the spirit of God, it doesn't make it easy. Life as a Christ follower is hard. And and, and you go through seasons and you have trials. And you got to know that. And you got to understand that it's not all Disneyland. And you have to expect some trials and some persecutions and some struggles and some spiritual battles in your life. Because if you don't, when they come, you're going to be like this seed in this soil and struggle. So these people had no depth and it sprung up and it and it went out. Do you know one of the things just at the pastor's conference, Calvary Chapel Pastor's Conference is going on in Hawaii right now. Just finished. And and, and one of the pastors said that 84 percent of people that go to church in America believe that the church exists to serve them. That explains a lot. It's probably true. You know how many people leave church because something went wrong? Because, you know, the, was, it was hot in here. There was no place to sit down. You know, we had someone leave this morning because we didn't have Sunday school. It's cool. They left before they ever came. But um, for all these things where, where we have this idea that, you know, something goes hard or that church is here to serve me. And if we have that mentality, we're going to struggle. If we don't understand that, that this is not a spectator sport. 
that we're all called. Do you know when the Bible says to go and make disciples of all nations, tribes, and tongues, teaching them all that I taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that that call is not for the church? That that's for every one of us individually? That, that's for you. That's for me. For you to go and make disciples, for you to be fishers of men. That's a call for all of us. And that together we're in that. So again, that, those are things that will help us from being shallow Christians. That we understand that we're a part of the call of God. That we're, we're, we're called by the Great Commission to go and make disciples. It's our job to serve in a community, in a church somewhere. And, and that, that my role in the church is to love and serve other people. Not to be, and not, not that you won't be loved and served, but if you have the heart to love and serve other people and everybody has that heart, guess what happens? Everybody's needs get met. And, you, and, and, and we, don't, we don't end up fighting and bickering over nonsense and over piddly stuff and the color of the carpet. We, we honestly, honestly, truly watched a church completely split because they were replacing the carpet and half the church wanted green and half the church wanted brown and half the church left because they, the, the color of the carpet. Come on. What are we doing like, what are we doing if it's the issue is the color of the carpet? If the issue is not seeing lost people come to Jesus. If the issue is not seeing people who are far from God being brought close to God. If the issue is not discipling and ta- training and teaching and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, we're missing it. And, and we do that together as a body. Listen, if you come as just a spectator all the time, I'm going to bore you. Eventually, the whole thing is going to bore you. The whole thing is going to wear you out. But if you come as a participant, if you come as somebody who's, who's alongside of me, alongside of the church in this ministry, in this call to, to, to turn Tooele County upside down and reach Tooele County for Jesus, then we'll go. I got the good one coming up and I can't miss it. So um, then verse 22 says, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world. Everybody say cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches. Everybody say deceitfulness. Of riches choke out the word and he become unfruitful. Whenever Jesus adds this little word, you end on top of something that you're called to be, it's dangerous. And in, in, in Matthew 17, the danger is those that have unbelief. Here it's unfruitfulness. We don't want to be unfruitful. So in, the, in this third seed, listen, this is the one where I think most of us fall into. I think this is the one where most of us would probably, our antennas would go up and we'd perk up because there's two things that keep this seed or keep this person from really being an intimate Christ follower. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth, the deceitfulness of riches. What, what is the cares of this world quickly? Well, every one of us have, have cares in the world that are not wrong, right? Like, like we have responsibilities. Like right now I'm thinking about, you know, is, 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 is my house leaking they had a little leak. Is it, you know, like I got things that going on all the time, right? Like, and, and I care about those things, but to be a responsible person, I probably should fix that leak. And, and in order to, you know, I should take care of my cars and one of the tires on my car is bald and needs rotated. And those are cares of this world. I got to go to work. I got responsibilities at work that I, I have to meet needs. I have to meet people's needs. I got to meet schedules. I got appointments. And so we have cares that uh, in business, in life with our family, in order to be a good father, in order to be a good worker, in order to be a good pastor, in order to be a good employee, employer, you have cares of this world that are normal, that are part of doing life. But, but in that, obviously, some of the cares of this world can be part of the distraction from what your first goal is, and that's to be a Christ follower. 
The Bible doesn't say, seek ye first the, the wealth and then God will be added unto you. He says, seek ye first God and his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these other things will be added unto that. But we get it backwards. You know what the number one excuse that men use to not be involved in churches? Number one excuse men use to not serve in their churches. Everybody says too busy, but it's along those lines. But no, the answer is family. Oh, you know, and how do you argue with that? Oh, I want to I want to spend time with my family. Well, that's a noble thing. Like that's that's a really good thing. You can't argue with it. So so it's a good excuse because it works. I want to be a family man. I got to do this. I got to do that. But it it can be to the point where it's out of balance. God's not first in your life. And you want to minister to your kids and be a family man? Put God first. Serve God first and God will make time. But the cares of this world can be the distraction. We're almost done, you guys. I know we're we're a little bit over now, but uh, we're almost done. And then the last, the second one Jesus said is the deceitfulness of riches. Now, it's not riches that are bad. Okay, lots of good people in the Bible were rich. Okay, Abraham, the father of faith, was very, 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 very buku rich. He was Bill Gates of his day. King David was very rich. Solomon was probably the richest man that ever lived in human history. And he's a great character in the Bible. Many, many, many Bible characters. Lot. Lot was amazingly wealthy. Okay. Um, So it's not necessarily the riches. It's the deceitfulness of riches. What's the deceitfulness of riches? That money's going to make you happy. How much money do you need to be happy? The answer is always the same. Just a little bit more than you have. Just a little bit more than you have. Everybody says, oh, well, you know, I'd like to hit the lottery. I said, oh, the lottery ain't going to do you no good. Oh, but I at least would like to try. Let me tell you something about generosity. You know what everybody says when they say they're going to win the lottery? What are they going to do with it? You guys think right now in your head, what are you going to do with it? Everybody says, oh, I'm going to give it away. No, you're not, you liar. Listen, if you're not generous with a little, if you're not generous with a little, let me tell you something. Let me, let me, let me break something to you today in church. You're not going to be generous with a lot. That's just the bottom line. Generosity is a spiritual gift. If you don't give away what you have now, if I add 10 million to it, you're not going to give it away. You got 10 bucks and you give that away and then I add to it, then you have no problem because generosity is who you are. Generosity is a spiritual gift. But you know what that $10 million will do to you rather than just make you generous supernaturally, which it won't? It'll destroy your life. Read this. Please read this for me, guys. Check me on this, okay? Be a Berean on this one at least for me today. Sometime today, I want you to Google um, stories of people that have won the lottery in the United States. Okay, please, please, please do this. You know what you're going to find? Do you know where people, the biggest lotteries that have ever been won, over hundreds of millions of dollars, do you know where those people are today? Less than 10 years later, they're broke, they're dead, or they're in jail, or they're in rehab, or they're addicted to drugs, they're divorced, their lives are wrecked, they have nothing. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. You take somebody who has nothing and you add that to their life, it's not going to make them happy. It's a deceitfulness of wealth. You want to be truly happy in this life? Love people. Serve people. Give away what you have. Be a generous person. Be a giving person. Be a loving person. You've gone through something hard in your life. You've gone through a divorce. Love other people that are going through divorces. Help them. Carry them through it. Encourage them. You've gone through something hard in your life. Let God heal that and then be a, be a beacon of light to serve other people that are going through that same thing. 
You've, got, you've had miscarriages. That's a hard thing for women to go through, for families to go through. You let God heal that, and then, and then find, find young gals that, that have gone through miscarriages and love on them. That's how you'll find strength. That's how you'll find joy. That's how you'll find happiness. But the deceitfulness of riches is Jesus warns you about it. I, I did a, here's another little Google study you can do today just for fun. Do you know how many billionaires are in prison? Today, there's 12 of them. Now, some of those billionaires that are in prison are murder and kind of things like that, where they just got a little south and they're in prison. Most of them are in prison because after they had billions, there's a guy in prison. Look him up. He's, he's in Hong Kong. He's a Hong Kong um, uh, real estate tycoon. He's in prison. He has, his net worth is $17 billion. And he's in prison for bribes that he used to make more money. If you have $17 billion, you could buy, I was going to say a Lamborghini every day for the rest of your life. But if you have $17 billion, you can buy a hundred brand new Lamborghinis every day for the rest of your life. Is it not enough money? That guy didn't have enough. Didn't have enough. Why? Money don't make you happy, man. How many famous rich people commit suicide every year in this country? Tragic, right? Robin Williams recently, last year, whenever it was, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. It doesn't make you happy. I'm like, we are. Promise you guys we're done. And then it says, um, so Jesus warns. And the last one is he who received the seed on the good ground, who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, some 60, some 100, and some 30 fold. So I told you we'd answer why you get 30, why you get 60, why you get 100. So I don't want to disappoint but we obviously want to be that last soil. We want to be good soil that, 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 that seed lands and we produce fruit for God. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Why 30? Why 60? Why 100? Does God wake up this one morning and arbitrarily just pass out 30, 60s, and 90s? Does he write 30, 60, 90 down on some paper, swish them up in a hat, and then when you, you come up in line, he hands you one and whatever you get? How do, you, how, how do we know? Who's, who decides? You know, this is something, honestly, I struggled with for a while because I, I, I guess I got it bad. And maybe like you, I was like, Lord, I want to be 100. How can I be 100? Hopefully, if you're going to be, if you've got a choice, 30, 60 or 100, you pick 100. I want to be 100 full fruit for you, God. And year and year and year seeking God about why is it? And how do we decide? And God spoke to me very clear. And he said, you decide. And that's the answer. Where, where are you going to land 30, 60, or 100? That's not for God to decide. That's for you to decide. James says very simply, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. James tells us about your relationship with God. God is in the business of meeting you where, as, as, as far as you want to meet him. Coming as close to you as you want to be. You want to keep God at arm's distance? Guess what God's going to do? He's very happy to stay at arm's distance. Not that he's not happy to stay there. He'd much rather be closer to you. But he's going to stay at arm's distance if that's where you want to keep him. And if you say, oh, okay, come a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Do you know, last thing we're going to illustrate this and we'll be done. Um, John, the disciple, Jesus called him the beloved disciple. Do you know that means that Jesus said, I love John more than Peter? Some of you say, no way, that's, that's favoritism. The Bible says Jesus loved John more than Peter. He's the beloved disciple, and John had a closer place to Jesus' heart more than the other disciples. Why is that? Because John, like John, Jesus said, John was more handsome than Peter? 
He, he told funnier jokes. No, J- Jesus didn't pick John over Peter. Peter had every opportunity that John did. Jesus just simply did one thing. He just responded to where John wanted to be. And John wanted to be right here. And that's why at the Last Supper, who was laying on the lap of Jesus? John the Baptist. No, you guys are with me. And it's late and you're still with me. The Apostle John, he was the one, the beloved disciple. And, and he just, in James, he just simply wanted to be close to Jesus. You want to be close to Jesus in here today? You have the same opportunity as John. You have the same opportunity as anybody else. And you have the same invitation to bear 30, 60, or 100 fold. You make a choice. And listen, Jesus is not interested in casual followers. He wants you to be all in. And he invites you to come all in and and be a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.